This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Joe Kirk, the brand curator in the United States of Grand Seiko. Joe, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we've we've uh, we need to have more of these chats because we've had a lot of conversations over the years that would merit podcast conversations, and we've known each other <laughs> quite a while. I don't remember how long it's been, but let's. I want to go back. You were you were a salesperson in Arizona who was doing videos about how much you like certain Japanese watches. And you were kind <laughs> of the first person doing that, right? Like, that's kind of where, where your and I's path first crossed, right? Yeah, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, you came to one of the very first Grand Seiko events in the U.S. in 2010. And, yeah. uh, you know, that was kind of uh, the first time we met in person, but we had chatted over, over email probably for at least a year or two before that. So, uh, yeah, we go back. <laughs> It's crazy how fast time goes by. You've come a very long way since then, not just in terms of your career, but a lot of things like that. And I think it's very important to talk about that because these sort of origin stories about how people get into the watch industry are illustrative of sort of how random and sideways this stuff is. I, I don't remember exactly, but... I don't think your aim was ever to get into the watch industry. If, if I recall correctly, this was sort of a, a, a happy accident, or do I forget the history? No, I mean, more or less. You know, I actually, uh, you know, I started kind of uh, more more so in, in the cigar industry uh, and ended up working at this store in, in Arizona that sold both cigars and watches. So from there, just kind of fell in love with watches, and I guess the rest is history. Now, one of the things that you were doing very early on that, I, that I, I just don't remember any other retailers really doing that is you were participating in online discussions. You would make videos, you go to forums, you really wanted to make sure that there was coverage on a blog to watch. Explain a little bit about the context. What was, what was going on at the time? Why was that important to you? Why did you have that ability? Because what you started to do back then is more or less what entire generations of of people that retailers and brands for that matter have done after you. And I'm not saying you had this grand design. Obviously, it was just sort of this was this is what was happening on the internet. But talk a little bit about that because it was very much a frontier compared to today, which is um, a little bit more of a populated space. Well, I mean, thank you for for uh, you know saying what you said. I mean, to to start kind of early in that was more or less out of, uh, you know, the housing crisis in 2008, you know, where most of the of the sales were coming from in-store sales. And back then, the industry, you know, the watch industry as a whole was very fearf- uh, fearful of the internet. So that was, you know, that was something that, uh, you know, most brands were intimidated by, let's say, is having a presence online. Uh, obviously, e-commerce was not uh, a big thing in the watch industry back in those days. So, you know, you had to kind of find other outlets, let's say. Right. And so in, in Scottsdale in particular, where, where I was at, you know, the, the housing crisis there, uh, in-store sales kind of plummeted 
And so I started to look at other outlets and we kept hearing about these different websites that, you know, would, would kind of draw people to our store, uh, and calling mostly over the phone or contacting by email. And, uh, you know, obviously there's, uh, you know, the forums, like you mentioned, like Watch You Seek, uh, was, was a huge source of traffic. Your site, uh, Blog to Watch was, was, a, uh, a blog to read at the time and, uh, heard about all, all, you know, all the time. So those were, you know, those were kind of the outlets where, we kind of found the community, let's say. And uh, I think that's one of the most important things about this industry is really the community. And whether you're in the industry working for a brand or working for, uh, you know, media, or if you're in retail sales, or if you're a collector, you know, the, we all have this kind of common bond, right? We all kind of come together for watches and, and appreciate them and care about them and, and are excited by them. And so it's nice to be able to talk to people who are actually excited about product and not just their, you know, kind of chilling, let's say. <laughs> it was oddly fragmented at the time. And I'm not saying it's that much better today. But what I mean by that is it a watch brand's relationship with a retailer, Arizona Fine Time in Arizona, where you were at the time, like that was sort of the entirety of the relationship that a retailer had with the brand in the universe. Like they weren't like, here's the media, here's the industry. It's like buy our products and sell them and we'll tell you no more about this world. Retailers themselves, if they wanted to do better, if they wanted to be more literate, had to themselves or via just you know one employee such as yourself become in-house experts. I guess the thing that you did that I think is the most um, you know important is you took it upon yourself to gain expertise about the product area by researching it, and then you took the bold step, which may may have not seemed bold at the time, but to make your own media, which again was very prescient because that's exactly what a lot of of companies had to do. And you were doing in a primitive but effective way at the time the <laughs> the type of reach out that many retailers and brands right now struggle to figure out how to do. And it's funny because I, I try to say to them, it just takes the right person that cares. Like you put Joe in the right situation and you give him the freedom to do it. He's going to make the media. But when you try to make it as a, um, you know, as a plan and you try to structure it and you have a schedule, like it completely breaks down, right? Like it has to be <laughs> highly organic. Yeah, I think that's, you know, a, a big important factor is, you know, the, the organic nature of it. And just, you know, I mean, like I said, uh, passion is, is kind of everything behind it too. It's not just about uh, pushing product. It's it's really about, you know, being genuinely interested and and uh, excited about, about, you know, watches in general. But uh, obviously, you know, today, Grand Seiko. And that's kind of where it really took off was, you know, Grand Seiko was a very new brand in 2010. You know, you saw it live kind of for the first time in, in the U.S. market. And, and there's just like this, this mystique, this intrigue about this brand. And that's, I mean, really for me, uh, you know, it's, it sparked an interest. And, you know, there's this kind of hidden gem from Japan that everyone was talking about, but no one really knew a lot about. So that was always the goal is learn as much as possible and, and help share that information so people understand it the same way that essentially I did, you know, but now there's many people who have that same, let's say, uh, comprehension. I, I, again, I want to go back to this era because I think there's more of the story that maybe you even forgot. So <laughs> could be, could be. Joe's, Joe's particularly interested in high-end Japanese watches. You have a particular interest in this. Yes, the story carries some of it, but you can tell that you yourself 
are fascinated by this. And at the time, very few of the truly high-end Japanese watches were made in the United States. Grand Seiko, not officially sold in the United States. Most of the interesting stuff from Citizen, not officially sold in the United States. So what you did, and I think Arizona Fine Time uh, receives a lot of credit for vis-a-vis you, was making a market in the United States for these what were very exotic and esoteric high-end Japanese watches. The collectors did not need to be particularly convinced were, were cool, but the brands themselves made it about as difficult as possible to learn about or get these watches in the United States. And you proved not only that there is interest for that in the United States, but you almost single-handedly created uh, 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 a, a definable market for it through an authorized reader, where most of it, most of it before, was happening on casual transactions through forums and stuff like that. Um, do you do you remember it differently, or do you think that I'm I'm correct in that assertion? I mean, it, it, being very generous for sure, <laughs> without question. But uh, you know, I mean, my interest in really in in Japanese watches. Pretty much, I mean, it stemmed from Grand Seiko. That was kind of the first, you know, Halo brand uh, that was that was in the store uh, in Arizona. So, you know, from there, other brands were were sold because of the success of Grand Seiko. And you know, it, it really was, I'd say, because of both Seiko and Grand Seiko, um, I became intrigued about Japan. And so, I think that you know, I think that the world you know uh, has has become intrigued by Japanese watchmaking now. Um, you know, whether it's uh, you know whether it's Grand Seiko, uh, another bigger brand, or a smaller independent brand. But overall, I think Japan has a lot more exposure, and I think that there's you know kind of there's an allure to Japan in general, right? Whether it's watchmaking or clothing, fashion industry, um, you know kitchen knives like there's there's all these different communities about japanese goods uh, especially when you get into the handmade segment and that i think is what's you know most special uh you know in in that regard is is really seeing these kind of masters come in and hone in on their crafts and that's you know that that's really the allure for for me and i think for most people Talk a little bit about the first time or the first times that you started to have a serious personal relationship with the companies. You know, you mentioned Grand Seiko, and I know that's obviously who for you work you work for, so the loyalty needs to be big. Yeah. But there were other brands. There were other, you know, the Citizen and some of the Casio stuff, I think, for especially the Citizen uh, you were pushing. But, you know, you were promoting this stuff for a while, and then eventually... I think through events at the store, you start to meet the actual people from Japan. Talk a little bit about what it was like the first few times meeting members of these watch friends from Japan, what they were talking about, what they were asking you about. What was that like? Well, uh, I would say that, you know, there's there's always been a, a curiosity for luxury Japanese goods, you know, in the watch industries in particular, um, from from all the major brands. But really, you know, the only representatives that we ever had seen in that store were, you know, coming that were coming from Japan were, you know, 90 something percent from Seiko or Grand Seiko. And then, you know, uh, I, I can only recall one other instance where, uh, you know, like Casio uh, had the creator of G-Shock at the store. But, um, you know, in in reality of things, you know, there there wasn't really, I think that there was always an intrigue, like what, you know, what's making this successful in your location? Because, you know, again, it was kind of a unusual location. You know, it's not New York, it's not LA, it's not uh, a, a big place, let's say, um, for watch sales. But, uh, you know, 
people found us, the, you know, back then because of the internet. So that was, you know, that was kind of the driving factor. And I think that was, uh, you know, still there at that time, there was maybe a, a, a bit of fear in the, in, uh, the watch industry for internet communications, let's say. So, but yeah, meeting, I mean, meeting the people is amazing. You know, it's, uh, you know, I bought my snowflake based on meeting a watchmaker from from the Grand Seiko uh, Shinshu Watch Studio. You know, he came to the event and was wearing the snowflake. We had never seen one at the time, and you know, it was it was really amazing because you see these pictures online and you see you know these uh, you know small little thumbnail pix- pixelated pictures that you know you have to order these things off of, and um, you know that was that was then obviously different uh, scenario today, and so. <laughs> You know, we'd never seen the Snowflake watch before, and uh, Mr. Kamijo, the craftsman from our Shinshu watch studio, came, did the first event, and was wearing the Snowflake watch. And then all of a sudden, we see this, you know, beautiful texture and the titanium, and they tell us the story of how it's a tribute to their hometown's winters. That changed my mindset. That was uh, that was a big ordeal, I would say. That was that was what really got me psyched in in Japanese watchmaking. What did they want to know about you or were they all interested? Because I think that sometimes, at least <laughs> back then, there was this, that's why it was strange to them. They're like, Phoenix, Arizona loves our products. We don't understand, does not compute. Like, I think that at first they're genuinely shocked and surprised by the popularity that um, is being demonstrated by not just your zeal, but by the purchase activity, which is happening. I I believe that their, their their first reactions was not again. It was obviously curiosity, but also a lot of confusion. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, odd location. Uh, you know, I was in my uh, 20s at the time. You know, looked like a young hooligan, probably uh, <laughs> not, not quite refined, let's say. But you know, I mean, it's uh, it worked. It, it absolutely worked. And you know, again, without. Uh, Without the the draw of Grand Seiko, with that announcement uh, in 2010 uh, that Grand Seiko was becoming a global brand, that I don't think that there would have been the success or the excitement because that was that was the driving force behind it all. And you know there were other very successful items. You know, like uh, the Seiko Astron uh, was launched in 2012. That was that was a huge hit. Um, Prospects became you know more of a global brand towards 2015, uh, 14, 15. You know that uh, those were exciting things. But the biggest excitement has always kind of been around Grand Seiko. And you know, I think it's uh, you know going back to that enthusiasm and excitement uh, that people had around it. Now, let's talk a little bit about your shift from working at a retailer to Grand Seiko. You've been there a while now. You've had a lot of different jobs. You moved uh, multiple times across the country for this. This job has not only changed your life, but influenced where your life has gone. Talk a little bit about making that first decision, what that was like, because I think it merits saying your experience is quite rare. Not it shouldn't be, but the idea that you sort of are this sort of homegrown watch enthusiast that was brought into a brand you worked there officially and have developed a very interesting niche for yourself within that brand is is not common. That's why I want you to talk about it because I'm not saying someone can copy your trajectory at all, but it'd be good to know that it's special and different and not not the norm. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I honestly like I don't think that. Uh... 
you know, I'm anything special in that regard or, you know, anything like that. I think it's, you know, an opportunity, uh, you know, kind of showed up. Um, you know, I spent a, a good year between doing retail uh, in Arizona. I did some freelance work for about a year and that kept me busy. And, you know, kind of always uh, in the back of my head, I was, you know, hearing this buzz about a, a boutique opening in Miami. And so this is, you know, ar- around the time 2000, towards the end of 2015, let's say. And so, you know, eventually I heard this, this boutique was opening in 2016. And uh, it was, at the time it was a Seiko boutique. And Seiko had approached me about uh, becoming the director of, of this boutique. And, you know, I, I honestly, like, I knew if I was going to work for any brand, had to be, you know, Seiko, but I was really going for Grand Seiko. Like that's, that was what my goal was, right. was right. to to specialize in Grand Seiko. And, you know, it, there's, there's just always been something special about the brand. And, you know, I, I know we've probably had this conversation, you know, between you and I before, but I mean, realistically, you know, there's a lot of other brands in the industry that I like and follow and appreciate, but, uh, you know, I was always a big independent watchmaker guy. And like, I always loved the independence and, like Grand Seiko was the only brand that I felt like connected with. Like I, you know, knew the watchmaker behind the brand, you know, cause you, you meet several of them doing these events and, you know, there's just so many amazing people that, that, you know, uh, come together to, to create this brand. And it's, you know, and from a watchmaker standpoint, it's still very small. Um, so that's, that was exciting to me. And, you know, the growth of Grand Seiko was exciting to me. And I said, you know, maybe I don't necessarily want to do retail for the rest of my life. But, uh, you know, I, I, I enjoy my time behind the counter. But, you know, I feel like there's there's more I could do. And so but I, I said to myself, this is like the perfect opportunity. This is a foot in the door for a, a brand that I love and, and I'm passionate about. And I, I want to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, preach about, let's say. Right. So joined the company in 2016, summer of 2016. They sent me to Japan for my first time. That was mind blowing. And I'll tell you the, not only did I take away, you know, things about Japan, like that a tourist would take away, like the food, you know, blew me away. Like the food is amazing. And now, you know, I'm obsessed with Japanese food, Uh, but the culture, the history, you know, all these things that I've been kind of gradually learning and really just because of this brand, um, those all were amazing takeaways from, from that first trip. But then to go to the manufacturers and to see firsthand, you know, the, the Shinshu watch studio where they make spring drive and the nine F quartz, right. That, that was mind blowing because it's such a small scale look, right. There's only a small, you know, handful of craftsmen and women making Grand Seiko watches in that manufacturer. And then you go up North to, to Morioka to see the other manufacturer, same thing. It's, it's a very small, you know, uh, you know, handmade craft, right? And you see the, the case polishing, the, the uh, you know, dial manufacturing, like all the ins and outs of watchmaking between these two roofs. I mean, you see it all and they're very independent of each other. And that was one of the things that kind of blew my mind too. So, you know, I, they kind of threw me in and my mind was, I came back from Japan and my mind was blown and I took so many notes while I was there. Right. And I, you know, I, uh, I, I can only imagine, you know, that notebook is still around here somewhere. I'm sure I have it, but the, the, I can't imagine how many pages of notes I took. And, um, 
that really kicked it off. So the boutique opened in Miami, uh, had a, a very small but great team there, and uh, actually one of the first guys to join. He's he's uh, the new manager of the boutique there. Um, you know, he's doing an amazing job. So very proud of him. So basically, I was there for two years. Uh, I started, you know, I basically heavily trained uh, the the team there, and. So that led to me doing further training because I, you know, was very knowledgeable and passionate and constantly researching the product that led to training. And so I was still the director of the Miami boutique, but then I started to train staff at the, at the Madison Avenue, New York boutique. And then I, uh, when we opened the Grand Seiko, uh, could you explain a little bit what you're training them on? I think that's important to explain what you were, what you were educating other members of your company about. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, the, the biggest and most important thing was like when Grand, we opened the first Grand Seiko boutique in the world on uh, on Rodeo Drive, right? They, I mean, it was like two days, uh, 10 hour classes straight. And then, you know, we took a break and had to work on the store and then we came back to it. And it went very technical training. Uh, so there's a lot to say about the movements and how they compare and contrast, uh, let's say, Swiss or German watchmaking. Um, so very technical in that aspect. Finishing handcraft, uh, all the all the effort that goes into the watches from a manufacturing standpoint, but also you know understanding you know the regions of Japan where they're made, the names that are associated with the brand and development, like uh, Yoshikazu Akahane who developed Spring Drive. You know these. Those are some of the more challenging things about the brand is learning these, you know, these locations like Shizukuishi or Shinshu, uh, you know, to, you know, kind of retain all these Japanese names for, you know, an American who doesn't speak Japanese might be a little more challenging. So in that regard, uh, you know, we also did a, a heavy training on uh, what they call Omotenashi. So omotenashi is like the, uh, you know, Japanese interpretation of hospitality, very high level of customer service. And that was, you know, one of the primary goals as well was to not only train them on, you know, all the ins and outs of Grand Seiko from a technical perspective or a craftsmanship perspective, but also to give them the understanding of like how, how things are done in Japan in, in retail sales. Um, not everything translates perfect, uh, let's say. So there are certain exceptions that, or, you know, corrections that need to be made for the American market. But that was kind of the goal is to give you, you know, uh, uh, a J Japanese experience, let's say, in the store. So those were some of the things that we trained on. And it was it was pretty relentless. <laughs> I can I can tell you that. I'm fascinated by this because my understanding is that even when Japanese businesses do business externally, there's still very much a wall between their culture and maybe the host culture, even though I think that they do make a lot of correct decisions when they work in specific countries. It's quite rare that someone will be brought in and trained in sort of the Japanese way. Did they say things to you like, you know, Joe, we don't normally do this, but, you know, we, we need to we need you to help explain who we are and what we do in the United States. I'm just wondering if there was ever any formal discussions about that, because to me on the outside, you were treated in a very special way. Yes, you're still a you're still a gaijin. So we, we know that. <laughs> but I think you do have 
um, a very special experience of of trust. And I'm just curious more about how some of the internal conversations are, because you've been to Japan many times now, and I'm sure during many intimate moments with members of the Seiko and Grand Seiko team, they've they've shared things with you that, uh, about their relationship with you in the United States. Well, I think that, uh, you know, so the, the first trip out there as an example was, was, uh, you know, the Omotenashi, the, the hospitality, let's say program. We had kind of like a, an hour and a half course, let's say, that we experienced there as, as a team, you know, all different sorts of members. And, you know, it wasn't mandatory that we bring that back to the boutiques, but it felt, it felt right. You know, it felt like there's, you know, there's a certain air that you should have. And, you know, there's, it's a very highly respectful thing and, you know, engaging a little bit for the customer. I mean, like, I don't want to say that, uh, you know, if you go to Japan, you know, it's, it's a highly engaging experience because they, you know, there I've noticed that they let you kind of browse on your own. They're, they greet you. They, they're very friendly. Um, but they, you know, they don't try and bombard you with questions or, or push you into anything, let's say. So, you know, there, there were little shifts, let's say, that we made. But, um, you know, in all the various trips that, uh, that I've had to Japan with, you know, uh, with our teams, um, you know, it's, it's always a unique experience. It's always hard to say, you know, that, uh, that, you know, there's consistent conversation about something. There's always, there's always questions, I think, um, you know, about uh, how the U.S. market's doing, or how you know the customers, the end consumers feel, or what they're what they're saying, but um, you know, I, I, that's not a question just for me. Let's say that's a question for for our team. You know, and I, to be honest with you, like our team here in the states, it's it's a relatively small team. You know, we're not a huge operation for you know Grand Seiko Corporation of America, and you know our uh, you know the brand president Breeze, who's uh, you know he joined just after I did in 2017, and then uh, you know Rusty uh, is the vice president here. He's been here, you know, he's been with Seiko 35 years almost. So uh, you know, been here a long time. Um, and, uh, Priscilla, you know, is our director of marketing. Um, you know, I'd say that, you know, especially the four of us, you know, we've kind of been, uh, you know, at the helm for a while now and in the U S market and, and they have a lot of trust, but obviously our team is bigger than that and grown now. That's just kind of where we started. And when Grand Seiko became independent in 2017, so. What are some of the things that they wanted to know about the United States? Cause I mean, within recent history, Grand Seiko went from being a very niche brand sold, you know, domestically within Japan and then very small number of, of places like Hong Kong and stuff like that um, to be, be basically being an international brand. And Seiko's relationship and presence in the United States market shifting, you know, in, in huge ways from being one of the sort of very big mass market brands that you'd find in department stores to being more of an enthusiast brand, average price point going up, of course, introduction of the Grand Seiko line um, and, and all that. Um, you know, give some highlights about how these really big shifts have affected the difference of culture or, or whatever uh, internally at Grand Seiko and Seiko. Yeah, I mean, so I think that, you know, I can only speak for so long, you know, in terms of Seiko, because, you know, once the company's changed in 2017, um, you know, the, the focus became Grand Seiko. And then 2018, Grand Seiko Corporation of America was formed. So it became a completely separate entity from uh, Seiko Watch of America. So that at that point, 
I had no involvement really with Seiko, very little, you know, still a fan, obviously, but, uh, you know, in terms of what I was working with on a day to day, I wasn't, I wasn't there anymore. So, um, you know, for Seiko, I, I saw a lot of change prior to 2017. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the, the low price, quartz watch that everyone kind of associated Seiko with back in the eighties, nineties, you know, it, it just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't necessary anymore. You know, Grand Seiko, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, totally different brand and, and not driven by mass production or, or, uh, you know, uh, inexpensive watches and their focus was a bit different, but Seiko took the approach of mechanical watchmaking in the, the mid tier market, where Grand Seiko took the, you know, the approach of, you know, high levels of watchmaking. And, you know, one of the things I always stress about Grand Seiko is like, Grand Seiko is about practical watchmaking. So it's there to tell time. It's there to, you know, be accurate, legible, durable. And, uh, you know, as long as it looks good, right, it's a, it, it, that's one of the most important things to most people. But, um, you know, always kind of perfecting the craft of a, of a practical watch. That's that's always been the goal of Grand Seiko. Where in Seiko, you have other things. You have like Prospects, which is more focused on, you know, tool watches, dive watches mostly, but, you know, we can say tools and generalization. Uh, Presage, which is, you know, mid-tier mechanical uh, price segment, but also, you know, Japanese craft uh, incorporated too as well. So, um, you know, you have these different elements uh, for the brands and different targets. You know, you had Astron, which, uh, you know, has the the GPS solar and is also expanded into the, the radio wave. So it's more of a, a collection in terms of design now. But, you know, overall, I think that, um, you know, both brands, while they're, you know, maybe not, uh, neither brand has, is playing in the, you know, low end at, at this point, you know, and Grand Seiko never was, but Seiko obviously, you know, had uh, many years where they, you know, were in mass production and that was what the, the market demanded. So, but now the market demand is a bit different. You know, if you want low end, maybe you get an Apple watch, right? It's like the, you know, I mean, you can get for what, a few hundred bucks. You probably know better than I do. <laughs> it's, it's hard for me to say, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I thank you for all that, and I, I want to hear a little bit more though about culturally and pragmatically what some of the changes were as Seiko really made this distinction because Grand Seiko and Seiko, it was a very blurry line between them. And then you said in 2017 they made this decision to officially split them. I don't know that there was ever a big explanation of why this was done. I think there's a lot of guessing and things like that. And then you said that there was even sort of a further shift. And today. There is a real line between Seiko and Grand Seiko in terms of companies, whereas just a few years ago, that was that was totally not the case. Can you explain a little bit why that happened and, and, and practically speaking, how that has changed the environment between the two brands? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that the, one of the most important factors in the separation of the brands is that, you know, Grand Seiko has always been made different. You know, it's always been made separate, let's say, from Seiko. And that I think is a, a primary force because when you have something that's as handmade as Grand Seiko, still marketed under the Seiko brand, 
people may not understand the difference between mass production Seiko, which is majority made by machine. Let's say the you know the old quartz watches that were you know a couple hundred bucks or sometimes less, um, versus you know this this high end you know whether it's five to ten thousand uh, dollar you know mechanical or spring drive or even a few thousand dollar quartz watch. How do you how do you distinguish the difference? And so that was very important element, right? Is there they've always been made separately. It's always been a, you know, prestige brand and all about handcraft and skill. And the, they honestly needed that separate identity. Um, but also, you know, I think it was uh, very strategic from the standpoint of, you know, Seiko and Grand Seiko used to share the same people doing, let's say, marketing or distribution or all of those things uh, that are important for kind of the day-to-day sales and communication. And the Grand Seiko needed its own dedicated team that was able to communicate Grand Seiko well. And, you know, uh, so marketing, you know, completely separate from Seiko at that point. Um, distribution totally changed, totally different distribution now. It's it, it's all changed so much uh, in that regard and for the better. Um, you know, the brand is, is not, um, you know, they're not looking for the same, let's say, retailer, same class of retailer. They're not in the same class of retailer as much. There's a little overlap, of course, but uh, that's natural. And, you know, I think those were the most important reasons for that separation. Um, that's my own personal feeling. I don't know that from, you know, uh, what I've heard, you know, uh, in the company, cause it's, it's not defined necessarily, but from my perspective, that's, that's the way I see it. Talk a little bit more about the types of things that people in Japan asked you, because they obviously take the step of making America very serious. You talked about the formation of the subsidiary, obviously the opening of the stores, Obviously, there's a lot of things that they want you to learn about what they do, but I'm just very curious what the culture was like in understanding the U.S., using you as a vehicle to determine that. Do they have other ways uh, that they learn about it and you just sort of, you know, are there to, 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 to chit-chat with? I'm just sort of very interested about what Grand Seiko is thinking and doing back in Japan, which affects America, which I'm guessing is an extremely important par- market for the brand. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you're, you're starting to see the evolution of that, too. Uh, so, like, Grand Seiko Corporation of America was formed in 2018. In 2020, they formed uh, Grand Seiko Europe, uh, SUS. Uh, so now in Europe, it's completely separate as well. And uh, more recently, last year, they... Uh, they formed uh, the Asia South Pacific, so that these are all new Grand Seiko companies that have stemmed basically every couple of years, right? So I think that it's a it, very much a group effort. You know, it's not just uh, asking me; it's asking you know number of different people and my colleagues in uh, you know EU, you know, or UK, or uh, you know, based out of the Singapore office. You know, what are some of the feedbacks that you're hearing from customers? And you know, I think that you know the the feedback is is pretty much, you know, universal, right? Yeah, everyone wants to know what we're doing, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. And, you know, I think that the consumer's feedback is very, very important. I think that, um, you know, and I think people listening to this podcast will be excited to know, yes, of course, uh, you know, we always report back that people want a smaller Grand Seiko dive watch, you know, or a micro adjustable clasp. Um, these are things that we know the market wants, right? Let's say, um, but, you know, there's challenges that come along with that. And I always tell people, this is something I've known for a long time. You know, our movements are the determining factor of our case sizes. Also, the case construction, 
right? So it's been a challenge for us because to make a really robust movement that's long lasting and highly accurate, you know, you also need to have a good size, you know, large balance and, and thick, durable parts. So movement size is a contributing factor to why we can't make a smaller dive watch, you know, and I always say at least not yet, you know, like I'm sure I'm confident that one day they'll figure out a, a way to overcome the challenge, but it's going to take time. And, you know, how are we going to do it without compromising the integrity of the brand without risking, you know, the accuracy or durability? So, these are all, you know, kind of factors that, uh, you know, I think are important for, you know, your listeners to hear, uh, you know, at this time, but also to, you know, to, to see that, you know, some of the changes that people have asked for, like thinner movements, you know, we've come out with thinner movements in recent years. So that's, that's a sign of progress. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's authenticity guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an authenticity guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase, because everyone deserves real. Who ultimately makes the decisions at Grand Seiko about what products are made? Obviously, they're taking in a lot of information. They are curious, but I'm not, I've never really been clear as to who decides what products are made, who has lead on design. Uh, what insight can you give there? I mean, they're, again, team efforts. So, you know, the, there's a team of designers um, that work specifically for Grand Seiko. And, um, you know, it's... There's there's basically one lead designer, Mr. Kamada, right now, who's in, responsible for Grand Seiko overall. But he's got a team of designers that he's working with that uh, you know are are basically interpreting the next generation of Grand Seiko. You know, in recent years we introduced the Evolution Nine, which is a huge part of our lineup today, and and you know one of our kind of most uh, you know important, uh, I would say, uh, you know, it's our new icon in the design world. But when it comes to, to new products and new product development, you know, it's a very much a group effort between movement designers, the engineers, right? then you have the exterior designers, the design team. So they're working together very closely, obviously, to make, you know, an amazing product. But then you also have the, the marketing communications office, which, you know, is also involved in this whole process because, you know, it's, it's, it's important that there's you know, not just people who are looking at the aesthetic, but people who are who are talking about the, you know, overall goal of the product, let's say, and what what need is it going to meet? And, you know, I think that uh, the, the most important thing for Grand Seiko, though, is that it's not, you know, it, it's not necessarily a person uh, or a group of people that are de the deciding factor in what's allowed in Grand Seiko or not. It's kind of the rules of is it practical or not? And that's, that's like the most kind of hard line uh, for Grand Seiko is, you know, is it practical? Is it accurate? Is it legible? Is it durable? You know, these are these are the most important things. Those come first and then everything else is, is to follow. Talk a little bit about demand generation. I think that especially historically speaking, if you sort of 
learned about Grand Seiko and you got into the enthusiast, you'd start to determine all these wonderful inherent values, you know, things that you've discovered, that I've discovered, that many other collectors have discovered about why these are great products. And I think the ownership experience tends to be universally very, very high. But, you know, with that said, there's a lot of storytelling which doesn't really happen that well. And talk a little bit about how, you know, Seiko Grand Seiko, who do not have the best, you know, history compared to some of the Swiss storytelling, have adapted a little bit. Of course, it's a moving target and there's a lot more to do. But, you know, going from a company that's basically like, we're going to make a great product and the market will know it, to we're going to make a great product and we also need to create demand in the market. And I think that's, for any company, that's that's a big challenge, especially one that doesn't really have it built into their DNA. Talk a little bit about that as being a developing part of the Grand Seiko brand. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, you know, pardon me if I'm uh, misinterpreting the question, but, you know, I think that from a storytelling perspective, Grand Seiko has an amazing story to tell, uh, whether it's historical, you know, but the, the, again, the problem is that most people don't know that story. You know, Grand Seiko coming to the U.S. market or the global market uh, in 2010, you know, there's a big chunk of history that's missing for most people unless they study. So they don't know, you know, uh, the chronometer trials in Neuchatel and Geneva, you know, the the story of, of uh, you know, achieving second and third ranking in Neuchatel and first overall in mechanical watch uh, wrist chronometer, let's say, for, for Geneva, um, you know, the chronometer competitions at the observatories. So, you know, th- like some of those historical no, the stories or, are there, but it's the storytelling, yeah. it's the presentation, it's the, all that stuff that, again, and, and pretty much every high-end Japanese company is guilty of the same thing of being so internally proud about it, they don't feel like they have to, you know, project wide and loud how amazing they are. Yeah, I think it's a very reserved, uh, you know, uh, let's say culture, not too boastful. Um, you know, it's pride, but... Uh, not over exaggeration and not, uh, you know, not something that's, uh, too showboaty, right. It's not, uh, I, you know, I can't, I can't speak on that, you know, a hundred percent myself, but I feel like there's always, uh, you know, this, this very, um, this, this, uh, this large sense of respect for the industry as a whole. And, you know, that there's not really been a boastful, uh, side of, of the company that I've ever seen. Um, and I admire that. I like that. You know, I like people to kind of discover the stories. You know, I'm kind of, uh, let's say the, uh, the loud American that will, that will tell these stories very vocally. But, you know, in terms of our marketing and communication, you know, we have changed and evolved a lot in that regard, though. I will say, you know, the stories of nature have almost always, you know, they, you know, they, almost always in the modern era, especially, Right. The the stories of nature have been hidden in Grand Seiko and, you know, like the snowflake. No one knew what a snowflake was until after 2010. And, you know, that was like an amazing discovery. It's like this watch that has no marketing or advertising that it's inspired by the snowfall, uh, you know, in central Japan and is a tribute to their hometown. Right? That story was nowhere on any of the communications from the brand. It was just kind of this hidden, cool story that, you know, collectors grew to love. Now these stories are are being told. Now these stories, you know, the sources of inspiration are there and and explained. And why we do things certain ways are explained. The history of our design uh, explained. You know, the, the, these things have evolved tremendously, I would say. So it's not, again, and it's not a, a boastful thing, 
proud but modest at the same time. And, uh, you know, I, I have a very high level of respect for that. And in terms of the the culture that you learned about Japan, and I think you've hinted at this a few times, and this is very important to discuss, but you you talk about going to Japan, learning certain certain things about their, you know, customer service, about their values, about their design. Now, armed with this additional information, you can sort of explain a little bit more about why Grand Seiko does the things it does. And I think part of the the mystery and interest for some people is in the background, you know, I don't understand why this came out. Can you explain a little bit from your, your, you know, it's not that new, but your understanding of Japanese culture to explain what this brand is about, what it's trying to do? Because I think there's still a lot sort of lost for a lot of Americans who like it, but are also kind of not confused, but not exactly clear what the whole deal is. Yeah, I, you know, I can always root it back to, you know, the element of practical watchmaking. Yeah, you know, I, I honestly, I think that that is going to be the source of everything that Grand Seiko does, right? You look at something uh, like Kodo as an example, right? Constant Force Turbion. No one ever thought they'd see in Grand Seiko, a, a Turbion for that matter. And that's all. That's the only word that rings in most people's ears uh, when you talk about Kodo is that it's a Turbion. But we didn't just make a Turbion to make a Turbion. You know, they did that in Crador as an example, right? Crador had, uh, you know, a very thin, uh, you know, manual winding turbion that they introduced in 2016. Grand Seiko, when we introduced this this complication watch, this high, uh, you know, high tier constant force turbion that was unlike anything Grand Seiko had ever created before, it, it wasn't doing it just to show about, hey, we can make a turbion. Like we've had that capability for a long time. It's, it's, it's not the matter of making the turbion. And, you know, it was the matter of taking the turbion, using it for its practical purpose, right? To help ease the pain of transition across vertical positions or compensate across vertical positions and adding the constant force mechanism into the turbion with no intermediary parts, right? Making it as energy efficient as possible. So that way, basically, it's never delivering, you know, low uh, amplitude due to duration of power reserve. And it's also compensating across the, the vertical positions. So there was a purpose in creating the constant force turbion known as Kodo in that we made it ultra high accuracy and stability across, you know, days of wearing. And that was that was the aim. So when we're creating products, the, the aim is to make the best possible product, whether it's, you know, spring drive, which has, you know, an ultra high accuracy. It can be manually wind, wound or it can be self-winding. It's almost no effect from shock during daily operation. It takes a lot to get it to, to have any kind of uh, disruption, let's say. The, the operation of the mechanism is ultra smooth because there's no collision, there's no stop and go motion, uh, there's no uh, friction in the escapement. It's all electromagnetically regulated. So, you know, it's, it, there's no physical contact. And that helps alleviate, you know, the, the stress, the longevity can be increased. So all of those things, you know, are very important to Grand Seiko. And, and uh, you know, the same goes for our mechanical watchmaking, you know, evolving past the traditional lever escapement and introducing what we call the dual impulse escapement, which is ultra high efficiency, right? This is, I think, you know, kind of the hidden note about Grand Seiko is the aim 
is obviously high performance, high accuracy, legibility, and durability, as I mentioned, but also to be as energy efficient as possible. And that is very important because if it's a highly energy efficient movement, then that means you can have high accuracy, long duration, and also ease of stress on the mechanism itself, helping improve the the longevity. So it's, you know, it, these I think are like the, the rhyme and reason why we do everything in terms of, you know, let's say the exterior components. Why do we Zeratsu polish the case? What does that even, you know, what does that kind of even mean to a lot of people? You know, the Zeratsu polishing is is, uh, you know, most people associate with the distortion-free mirror finish, right? It's perfectly flat, perfectly uh, distortion-free, and that's one of the most beautiful aspects of Zeratsu polishing, right? Instead of using, a, you know, soft cotton-type material with the rouge buffing the, the case, they're using a hard metal plate with an abrasive on the surface and grinding it to, you know, this flat, but also, you know, by intersecting multiple planes, using this, you know, this uh, burnishing technique, you can create this ultra sharp edge, kind of like polishing a sword or, or a kitchen knife, right? These high-end Japanese kitchen knives, you know, you, you, uh, you know, whetstone polish them. Zeratsu so polishing is very similar. It's not just to make a, you know, distortion-free mirror finish. It's also to create this, the case shape. So that can only be done by hand. So... Little elements like these, you know, require hand skill in order to create a product that is, in our eyes, beautiful, uh, kind of based on a Japanese sense of aesthetic. So those are some of the rhymes and reasons on why we do things. Um, I hope that answered your question <laughs> clearly because, you know, I, I no, it does. It does. And, and again, it's interesting how you've trained yourself to discuss, you know, what are very complicated topics. You know, you don't want to speak for Grand Seiko, but at the same time, you know, there's things that only you can sort of say. Um, I think what what you're saying is that at the end of the day, Grand Seiko just wants to be a very respected watchmaker and they want to make every every kind of high-end watch which exists, which is purely mechanical, you know, purely, purely electronic, uh, something in the middle, and they want to excel in all those areas. Um, I, and again, I'd like your opinion. I've seen them as being the type of company who is trying to sort of pursue a theme that began in Europe. And I know that they hate speaking this way, but there's very much sort of like, hey, look, we can do what you do kind of better, not in our own way. We can improve upon you. Yes, you may be, have all this respect, but you know, we want we want the world to see our stuff as being just as good, if not better. And so rather than sort of just making watches for the world, it feels a lot, it's a direct response to a culture that um, has begun in, in Europe. And this, it's, it's, not, it's not a good or a bad thing. I just think it helps explain because like you said, there's this desire from all angles to really at the end of the day, make the best wrist watches they can first and foremost. And that seems to be a predominant driving force. Would you agree or disagree? I mean, I, I definitely agree, and I, I can, uh, you know, kind of take it back, you know, uh, many, many years, you know, about 140 years ago, you know, Kentaro Hattori, the founder of the company, um, you know, he was he was adamant about, you know, when he started the company in 1881, he was selling and then very quickly went into manufacturing. And he looked at the Swiss, he looked at the American market. He didn't want to just be better than a European company. He wanted to be better than everyone. 
And that was his goal. And, you know, he wanted to make the best possible product, but also not to like kind of gouge, you know, the in terms of price. It had to be fair and competitive pricing. You know, people, you know, wristwatches in the early 1900s, or I shouldn't say wristwatches, but pocket watches more so. Um, and, you know, later wristwatches, you know, were very much a luxury back then. And so, you know, the aim that he had to create the best possible product carried through to his sons and then his grandsons, you know, and, and now his great grandson, uh, Mr. Shinji Hattori at the head of, uh, at the head of the company. You know, this is, this is still that same mentality to, to create the best possible product, no matter who in the world is making the best. You know, it's, it, it's not a, I don't think it's based on geography. I think it's based on just making the best possible product. The best possible product, of course, is, a matter of opinion. Uh, it's of a matter of culture and things like that. Where where does this culture come from? Is there an internal person who's like the head of watchmaking, the head of culture at Grand Seiko? I know Patek Philippe has these these papers. They don't really ever just sort of like show them, but they're like a bunch of documents to try to explain this is what a good watch is and we have to follow it. You know, Where does the sort of epicenter of watchmaking come from? You keep mentioning there's a team of people and whatever, but really there's there always seems to be some dominating personalities um, there. Um, I know that there's a very well-respected group of, of watchmakers at Grand Seiko who probably given more credibility and authority and attention than the watchmakers at some other companies, of course. Um, but I'm still sort of yeah. interested to sort of like where the core drive of what next comes from there. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that... Uh you know, there are always going to be people who are more knowledgeable, let's say, on history and, you know, the kind of the core, you know, fundamentals of watchmaking or even the the higher level of watchmaking from an engineering standpoint. You know, there's kind of, you know, and this is why it's important to have a, a team effort, right? Everyone, everyone has their specialty. Not one person can know it all, you know, and as much as I try, I will never know everything. And, you know, I, I want to, but, you know, this is, what's fun about it, right? Is it's like trying to learn everything. But you know, there's always going to be someone that knows more about the mechanism than me. There's always going to be someone that knows more about the history than me. And, you know, these these are very important people and and these are very important roles, you know, that come together to to create a, a, an amazing product. And that's, you know, again, you know, like you said, you know, it's uh everyone has kind of their own taste, their their own opinion. But um at the end of the day, you know, the, the quality of the product, not necessarily based on the aesthetic uh, of your preference, you know, that that's the aim is to is to make that and to still tra- stay true to the roots. So you have to have the historical guy, you have to have the engineering guy, you have to have the guy who's, you know, responsible for developing dial patterns and case polishing and, and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I don't think it could ever just be one. And I think that that's important, too, because if you put all the weight of the company on one person's shoulders, something's going to go wrong, right? What is the retail experience evolved like in America? And I th- I'm changing topic here a little bit, but you that's ran fine, yeah. a store <laughs> that sold Grand Seiko amongst, you know, normal high-end Seiko for Seiko. And, uh, and, and then you experienced the development of sort of a new company. What is the difference behind going into either a Grand Seiko boutique or a place that specializes in Grand Seiko versus when you're having a discussion with maybe a European brand? Because there is a very different sense of Japanese hospitality and customer service. It's not totally foreign from a European one, but there are a lot of differences, uh, especially in the way that you speak internally. Talk about some of the bullet points for what going into a Grand Seiko store is supposed to be like and maybe not supposed to be like. 
Yeah, I mean, for for us, you know, in in the U.S. market, I think that you know some of the elements that carry over um, from our uh, Japanese colleagues or the omotenashi elements uh, that you would find in the store, you know, obviously some of the you know basic things, right? Just like cleanliness and organization and stuff like that. Uh, the way products are displayed also, you know, has a little bit of a, a Japanese style, let's say, not as a Japanese department store, you know what I'm talking about? Like where it's very, very, very crowded. Um, yeah. Not not as bad as, as you would find in Japan, but, you know, that's, uh, you know, utilizing space uh, in a very efficient way, I would say. But, um, you know, I think it's important too to kind of highlight watches so you'll see that as well um where they're not so um i don't want to say consolidated but you know you you have kind of like stars that are highlighted in the displays at the same time um you know the the nature of the person behind the counter you know typically will stand uh you know uh will, should always greet you right when you come into the store i think that's very important that's something that you know you go to japan any department store you're gonna hear you just trying to say every time you know you walk into the store they're, they're repeating the same phrase you know welcoming you into their home and that's that's one of at the at the grand seiko boutiques that's i feel like one of the most important things is that you feel welcome like you're you're being invited into into you know our home it, it, it's it you know it's nice to know that you're acknowledged right when you walk into a store. So I think that's an important element, you know, for our retail partners too. And, you know, that we, we can't go in there and tell our retail partners to be, you know, Oh, you know, this is the Japanese way you should do this. We would never push that kind of thing on, on, you know, someone who has their own store. But I think that a lot of people carry over that uh, Japanese sense of hospitality that they might catch a little bit of a vibe from us, um, you know, in, in that regard. But I think the one thing that you can say unanimously across all of our stores, whether it's a Grand Seiko independent boutique, like where it's a mono brand store, only Grand Seiko, uh, or a multi-brand retail partner, you know, there's always excitement and enthusiasm behind the brand. And that's one of the things that, you know, we love the most. And we've seen tremendous growth in new retailers reaching out to us trying to acquire Grand Seiko for their store. And they're so hyped on it. Like they're so excited, uh, you know, to see the success of Grand Seiko and to see Grand Seiko in person, maybe for the first time, you know, it's, it's really, uh, you know, it's an exciting time for the brand. Uh, you know, we're growing, you know, slowly, I, I would say it's, you know, intentional controlled growth, um, you know, over the you know last several years, um, you know, strategically so that, this way, you know, we we have the exposure in different, you know, different regions of, of the U.S. market, let's say, but um, also not over expanding. You know, we, we we can't we can't grow too fast. Like I said, there's not a lot of watchmakers for Grand Seiko. So, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, the excitement is is an enthusiasm behind Grand Seiko is one of the things you will commonly find. And what is one of the best parts of, of visiting the Grand Seiko dealer? Professionally speaking, what are you interested in terms of developing? Because right now you have um, a very broad role at Grand Seiko. It's an exciting and interesting <laughs> one. But like, just out of curiosity, professionally, what do you want to do? You've done sales, you've done training, you've done this and that. I'm sure there's things you definitely don't want to do. But I'm just sort of curious, given the sort of organic way you fall on, fall into all this and the the sort of unique niche that you've, you've set aside for yourself. Because I think it's important to say, uh, brand curator is not a title 
that you'd see at most other companies. And when you know what Joe does and what he's done, there isn't a direct analog. So I'm just curious, given the fact that you're sort of in- inventing your own journey, as we all do in the watch space, uh, what you personally want to do that you haven't done yet. Well, I, you know, that's tough to say. I feel like, um, you know, the so just to kind of clarify, like with Brain Curator, uh, brand curator is a very vague title, and I, I uh, apologize if it doesn't make sense just hearing it. But to give you a sense of background of what I'm doing, you know, is you know I do a lot of uh, front-facing stuff. I'll do the you know podcasts and you know YouTube videos and stuff like that. You know, consumer-facing uh, you know interviews, uh, especially when it comes to technical stuff. That's kind of my area of expertise. But on top of that, you know, I'm also very uh, still very hands-on with customers, even though I'm not working in a retail store. Um, you know, I'm based out of our corporate office, but I go to a lot of our retail stores. Uh, I do tons of events. Um, you know, we have, uh, you know, all these events that, that occur across the country. And, um, now a lot of them are for our GS9 club. Um, and if you're not familiar with GS9 club, it's basically, uh, the, the Grand Seiko Collectors Club, um, that is, you know, actually run and managed by the company. It's basically the, the give back. Right. So we have these events where you can get unique swag at the events or, uh, we throw these big annual events, uh, as well. So we have, you know, uh, the last two years have been in New York, one in uh, Midtown in 2021, and then uh, in 2022, Brooklyn. Uh, this year, I'm excited to say that we're going to be taking that to, to your home turf in L.A. Uh, in November uh, for 2023. And, you know, I mean, we have, you know, it could be 500 to 1,000 people that show up in L.A. Um, you know, last year was probably six, 700 people in, in Brooklyn. So it's a, it's a very large scale event, and it's a great community building you know, for for Grand Seiko uh, collectors and nerds like myself. And, uh, you know, we do a lot of fun stuff with that. So uh, GS9 Club was one of the projects that I had as well. So I really enjoyed, you know, kind of, uh, you know, building that out for, for the U.S. market, which also helps set the, the stage for the global market, uh, you know, uh, GS9 Club um, website. Explain a little bit more about the GS9 Club and what it is and, and how people get involved with it, because I think it's unique. I think it's interesting. It, it does seem like a very natural evolution, but if you don't know about it, I think its parameters are a little bit confusing. Yeah, it's basically so if if you bought a Grand Seiko watch from an authorized dealer in the U.S., you qualify for a Grand Seiko GS9 Club in the USA. Now, now um, you know, we started ours in 2020 and other markets have been uh, introducing it gradually over over the last couple of years. So, uh, as an example, Australia just launched their their first GS9 Club uh, community the other day. Um, it's it, basically GS9 Club is you know bringing together the Grand Seiko collectors community. That's that's our main target and goal is to you know to to really give back with these very um, fun and exclusive events. Uh, we also do kind of like partnership events where you know we'll do it at our retail partner store, and you know you'll come and it may be a mix of their customers, maybe who don't own a Grand Seiko yet, but then we invite our GS9 Club members as well. GS9 Club members will get you know kind of uh, special gifts that won't be distributed to the broader audience. Um, we're creating the GS9 Club magazine uh, annually now. We've already published two issues, um, which is the uh, you know culmination of you know it's 
it's a magazine that's basically, uh, you know, we have some, some outside help, but very little. It's basically written and, uh, created by myself, uh, John Buse, uh, who's a member of our team, formerly of Houdinki, and then Ilya Riven, who used to be at Warren and Wound, um, you know, also a part of our, our Grand Seiko USA team now. So, you know, we're, we're creating a unique, uh, magazine for GS9 club members every year. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's exclusive, uh, you know, contents on the website. There's, uh, you know, we, we still do Zoom. I know not many people after the last few years want to continue to do Zoom things, but <laughs> we, we will do them from time to time uh, just to bring people together. And so, you know, yeah, you get gifts and stuff like that. And there was a GS9 Club exclusive watch that we launched last year. Um, so that was, that was a great success for us and, you know, kind of built around, you know, the, the collector's ideals in Grand Seiko. Um, so, you know, all of those factors were, you know, you know, are kind of unique to the GS9 club and, and that's kind of its purpose is to, to have unique experiences, unique products, and also unique kind of gift or collectible items as well. You know, these magazines are are a lot of fun. I'm taking it back sort of full circle to the beginning where you went to the enthusiast communities to spread passion. And now brands are, you know, trying to foster and create their own enthusiast communities. Obviously, that makes a lot of sense uh, to, you know, have an ongoing relationship with your enthusiasts outside of just, do you want to buy something? Do you want to buy something? Do you want to buy something? Um, (laughs) But, you know, talk a little bit about that, because I think that and again, maybe I speak from a position of having a, a, a bit of a, a, of, of a of an interest behind it. But as third-party media, I've always found that there's a relationship you can have with audience that a brand itself cannot. And brands must do the things that you're talking about. The GS9 Club, the publication, all that. Those are very intelligent things to do. But But brands can't do everything, right? Like that can't completely replace the community that you have with a third-party company. Talk a little bit about what brands stand to gain from developing these own uh, communities, but also maybe what they can't do themselves, what you need in a blog to watch for some other type of third-party community. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, listen, you're, you, there's never going to be, um, you know, uh, an elimination of need for for media. And, you know, I mean, it, <laughs> let's, let's face it, you know, the brand can communicate as much as they want on their own, but, uh, you know, it's really, you know, trusted sources of information like yourself that, you know, can, can come out and, and, uh, give, you know, their own opinion, their own feedback their you know, I mean, you, you built your own community. Um, you know, so there's, you know, there's always, I think, a, a need and an appreciation for, Everything that's done in in the media side, whether it's you or or other uh, media outlets, and you know that's diversifying a lot today too. Um, so you have to look at it from many different angles, right? You can't look at it as just you know uh, you know blogs are very important, but also you know uh, YouTube and video podcasts as we're doing now. Um, print media is still very relevant, um, you know, and none of that can be replaced by what a single brand would try to do. We're doing this stuff. In addition, we're trying to do it on top of it's like added gifts, you know, for for our customers and, you know, exclusive, uh, you know, contents is is really like, um, you know, we can't always do interviews with our designers and things like that. But, you know, we try and make those things happen, um, you know, for media, but also for our GS9 club that are maybe, sh- you know, shorter in length, but, uh, you know, 
more accessible, let's say, if you're already a Grand Seiko collector. So, Would you say that it's been a successful experiment with Grand Seiko Japan? Because obviously they need to be cooperative and, and hopefully willing to share this content and help create this content. Any any interesting stories about, you know, because again, I, I, you, you know what it's like to be in the position of media in a lot of ways, how what what the brand should be discussing, what they should be releasing, they don't always. What's that been like internally now that you have to actually create the media, you know, and 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 see some of the challenges that, you know, that we have had in terms of doing that? What's that been like? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, there's there's always going to be challenges. And I think like, you know, we can take uh, a perfect example, like, uh, you know, right now is people still, uh, you know, are very excited about the Kodo that I talked about earlier, the Constant Force Turbion. And the, not only are they excited about the Kodo, but they're also excited about the guy who created it, right? Uh, his name is Takuma Kawachia. And Kawachia is, uh, he's, you know, he's a brilliant mind. But he is not only just a brilliant mind, but he's also a very highly skilled watchmaker and is responsible for assembling these watches at the same time. So, you know, many people want to interview him right now, as an example. And it's been very challenging because we have to take him off production in order to have an interview. We don't really have time right now. So, you know, the, the but that's a, an example of a challenge, right? But, you know, thankfully, before we launched the Kodo, we were able to get in a, a, a little bit of an interview with him, let's say. Um, but, you know, we can't, we couldn't do it again if we tried. Um, you know, I, I think that realistically, you know, I think that, um, I think that the strive to, to improve, um, you know, the communication and, and the um, accessibility to to Grand Seiko information has improved tremendously over the years and is continuing to evolve. So I'm not seeing as many challenges uh, as you may have seen several years ago, let's say. But also at the same time, I, I do work for the company and, you know, a lot of this stuff... Uh, you know, that we're writing about as an example, stuff we know. So <laughs> we don't have to, you know, we've been we've been already working with and dealing with. So it's not uh, it's not as challenging in that regard. Well, you know, I, it's the news is already out now, but I I just wrote, um, you know, the 40th anniversary of the G-Shock book. So obviously a different company, but also yeah, a situation yeah. where you had to write about a Japanese company and ask for information and background. And, you know, I, I remember... <laughs> Sending this uh, this list three pages single spaced of questions to the team yeah. in Japan, <laughs> and their entire responses to everything was actually less words than just my questions, right? Uh, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, great! You really don't want." I mean, it's it's kind of amazing when you ask things; they don't tend to think of certain things as being particularly important, and you have to explain to them. Like, I remember being like, "I'd like to see some watches that you made uh, before." Uh, you know, the G-Shock. And for them, like, that's not even relevant. Like, as you know what I mean? So it's kind of funny, the difference between what's important and relevant to them and what they want to do versus what a consumer or an enthusiast or someone like you, an employee, might be interested in. And it's kind of this interesting, I wouldn't call it a battle, but it's just sort of like a sharing of perspectives um, on that because, again, there's so much more they could be doing. Yes, they have to pick and choose, but, uh, you know, it's it, it's a very interesting experience to try to uh, express to them the value of telling a story which is a bit bigger and grander than they might be ready to do in that moment. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I and understand. so, okay. <laughs> so I, I think that, you know, the, again, we're basically out of time here and I think this is a great conversation. I think the moral of the story 
is that when you're looking at Grand Seiko, there's essentially two things. There's the the superlative watchmaking, and to throw the word superlative in there, which, I, I mean, there is no doubt that that Grand Seiko was trying to do this. And, and, and Joe spelled it out, the case finishing, the dial quality and detail, and the movement as being a good machine. Uh, you know, for the most part, these are things that hold very, very true no matter what the Grand Seiko product is. Obviously, there's different ones for different tastes, but this is really a defining factor. And then, and I think this is the important part, after you've done all that, there's the added layer of brand, which you said is the experience, maybe the gifts, the design of the store. And and that's really sort of what, what Joe is working within, this company that does their best to make the best watch possible. But now, especially in the modern era, has recognized people are buying more than just a good tool. They're also buying a brand. And it's been very interesting for me, and I'm sure for you, to see in a sense, the blossoming of Grand Seiko into a flower, whereas it used to be very much in the bud before and you had to crawl inside to understand it. Now it's it's publicly inviting more attention. And it's done so in a way that's relatively fast, you know, just a couple of years. But obviously, a lot of changes have been made. And that's exciting for me because this is an evolutionary thing. Brands that were less brand-focused and more product-focused now have to be brand and product-focused. And they're developing. And I guess that's Again, I hope we agree, a summary of what we talked about. Yeah, no, I absolutely do. Where can people uh, go to learn more about you or in your recommendation to go learn more about Grand Seiko, either the website or anything else you want to plug right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, grand-seiko.com is the the global website that you can visit. Of course, you can find a ton of great information there. Um, the GS9 Club website is also a great source of public information aside from the members' exclusive content. So it's grandseikogs9club.com. Um, so that's, you know, a, a great source of information, news, and also events if, you know, you want to find out about public events or, or uh, you know, if you have a Grand Seiko and you haven't registered for GS9 Club, uh, you probably should should do that. I highly recommend it. But um, on top of that, you know, if you if you want to hear from me every once in a while um, on Instagram is probably my only way of communication at at josep.kirk. Uh, so J-O-S-E-P dot K-I-R-K is my Instagram handle. So you can find me there as well. Thank you, Joe. This has been the Superlative Podcast with Joe Kirk of Grand Seiko, brand curator. Joe, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. <laughs>